Uh, verse number 8 is going to be our key verse tonight. The Bible says, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly before thy God. The title of the message tonight is a continuation of this morning, Why Are You Putting God on Trial? We'll pick up where we left, this mo- left off this morning and uh, we've got a lot of good things to look at tonight. Lord, thank you for the, how you've already moved in our hearts tonight, how you've already moved in our hearts today, uh, through the service this morning and then through song tonight. And uh, Lord, uh, may the Word of God uh, reach us right where we live. May it be practical down on a level that will help us to leave here with uh, things that will help us to be better Christians. Thank you, God, for the Bible and all of the truths in it. Help us as we seek to be a people that live it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, let's quickly, quickly recap this morning's message for those of you who were not able to be here. Look back up at Micah chapter 6 and look at verse number 2. Micah 6 and verse 2. The Bible says, Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundation of the earth, for the Lord hath a controversy, there's that word again, with his people, and he will plead with Israel. We define that word controversy as meaning dispute, brawl, quarrel, lawsuit, legal case, or legal process. We said this morning that what we have is a double lawsuit going on where the people, God's people are taking God to court and God in turn is going to take His people to court. Uh, there is a, a cross uh, accusation. Uh, they're both holding each other in contempt over uh, their uh, perceive, uh, perceptions of each other. So why had these people, the ten northern tribes of Israel, why had they put God on trial? Well, by way of introduction, notice they lacked historical perspective. They lacked historical uh, perspective. The Assyrians did not come in one swoop and shut down the northern kingdom. All right. Uh, the, the fact is there were several different assaults over a handful of years that took place. The, the Assyrians would come in and raid Assyria over and over and over again. And each time they came through, more children were abducted. Each time they came through, loved ones were killed. Each time the Assyrians would come through and raid the ten northern uh, uh, kingdoms, money and possessions were taken, uh, buildings were burned, walls were broken down, the economy was weakened that much more. These people wondered where their powerful God had gotten off to. They wondered what happened to their God. Uh, Their God that had protected them in their borders for hundreds of years. Now, all of a sudden, He was absent and uh, they were watching this trauma unfold in their nation and in their lives personally. And they began to hold a grudge toward God. We see they lacked historical perspective. This uh, had been an ongoing thing between Israel and God. We said this morning, 19 kings, the northern tribes had 19 kings, and all 19 of them did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. They had had established the habit of going to either Dan or Bethel to worship a a God made out of gold, a golden calf. And they they had neglected God, even though the prophets had preached and threatened uh, God's wrath and judgment. uh, That had been neglected and ignored. And so we see here they lacked historical 
perspective. The same thing is oftentimes true in our lives. God is punishing us and we think, what is going on? Why is God letting this happen? And we forget all of the times where God has let us off the hook. All of the times God has given us another chance. All the times we've said to God, please don't punish me. Please, one more chance. And God, uh, 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 as a parent would, God says, okay, one more chance, one more time. And lo and behold, eventually we wear out that patience. And when God's hand of punishment comes down, boy, we better be careful about questioning God. We see they lacked historical perspective, but notice they lacked personal responsibility. They lacked personal responsibility. They made uh, the same mistake we make. Here was their attitude. God, I, I can live however I want to, and I expect you to protect me and not allow me or anyone else to hurt me. I can do whatever I want. I can do it whenever I want. I can have my version of Christianity. I can, I can be as casual and, and cool and backslidden as I want to be with it. And God, you better protect me. Uh, you, you better look after me. And, and, and you better make sure that all things are good in my life. And God says, whoa, time out, hold on. Where are you taking personal responsibility for the wrath and judgment that I'm lowering down on you? When are you going to own up to it? I've noticed a trend in children and teenagers and even some young adults of today. Back up, it used to be that when a mistake was made, someone would say, oh, my fault. Oh, my fault. You know what that is? That's personal responsibility. You know what they say today? It was an accident. It was an accident. Not my fault. It was an accident. See, uh, it's not my fault it happened. The whole thing is an accident. And, and, and you say, oh, well, that's minor. That's right. It might be, but that it is systematic of a larger problem where people do not want to take personal responsibility for the problems in their life. And this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Adam pointing the finger at Eve, Eve pointing the finger at the serpent, and Cain pointing the finger at Abel, and on down the line it goes. And even today, wives point the finger at a husband, and husbands point the finger at a wife, and children point their finger at their parents, and, oh, I'm just a victim of my circumstances, and I can't help the way I am because of my upbringing. It is time we get to a place where we look in the mirror and we say to God, it's me, it's me, it's me, O Lord. Standing in the need of prayer. It's time we embrace personal responsibility. And when things aren't going right in your life, quit looking for someone to point the finger at and say, how could have I done better? How could have I lived better? You see, the Israelites are holding a grudge against God when God is simply punishing them for hundreds of years of living in a backslidden state. The observations we looked at this morning were, number one, the court's audience. We said that God called the population of the earth, both the, the mountains and the hills, the, the large cities and the rural areas, to come in and be the peanut gallery as this trial would take place. We looked at number two, the people's accusation. We said they accused God with their disobedience. We looked at the fact that people do not obey someone they do not respect. And the Israelites had lost 
all respect for God and uh, they were holding a grudge against God. They were, were rejecting the authority of God by living in disobedience of God. We said that they not only accused through their disobedience, they accused through their disinterest. Again, traveling to Dan and Bethel where they would worship golden calves and, 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 and do other things of idolatry. And they, they've turned to idolatry instead of worshiping God. They've lost all interest in, in serving God. And we said they, they accused through their defiance. We looked at how God has labeled the Israelites as being a stiff-necked and hard-hearted people. Uh, folks who lack circumcision of heart, we saw. And the accusation they raised was not so much with their words, but with their actions. And so we see the court's audience. We see the people's accusation. And then this morning we saw the Lord's answer. The Lord's answer. Uh, the Lord says to them in Micah 6 verse 4, He says, don't forget, I'm the one that delivered you. I offered you deliverance. You were in Egypt and you were in slavery and I came and brought you out of Egypt. And then, even though you were rebellious and, and cantankerous and, and, and faithless, I led you out of the wilderness. And then I took you and, and, and delivered to you your promised land and helped you overcome your enemies. And then when you were carried away into captivity because of your disobedience, I brought you back in through your repentance and I showed you mercy and forgave you time after time after time. I have delivered you. How dare you hold a grudge against me? But not only did God point to the deliverance, God also pointed to the direction. He said, I gave you Moses and I gave you Aaron and I gave you Miriam to lead you. We looked at how we have the Holy Spirit, we have the Bible, and we have the church to help lead us and guide us. And there is no excuse when things go awry in our life and we want to turn around and blame God. So that brings us up to where we are tonight. We're going to look at a step into this courtroom through this sermon of the prophet Micah and see four more observations that come out of the trial before the people of God and the God of all people. Notice number four, number four, the Lord's attorney, the Lord's attorney. Look at verse number six and seven here with me. We'll see in a moment that Micah steps in and represents God very, very well in the next several verses. Micah becomes the mouthpiece for God. He is the attorney for God. Micah could speak on behalf of God and be understood by the people because he was God's man. Now watch this. He belonged to God. He was obedient to God. He was a prophet of God. But not only was he God's, he was a man. You understand that as a man, an Israelite man, he can speak directly to his own people and say, listen, we have blown it. You have blown it. And I speak on behalf of God. Look at Micah 6. Look at verse 6. Where, wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be, uh, uh, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? We see here the people confused and Micah voices their confusion and show, uh, shows them how their thought processes are all wrong. Through these verses, Micah points out three areas uh, where they have worship wrong. Notice letter A. He, uh, God does not like your mindset. God does not like your mindset. Look back at verse number 6. Look back at verse 6 with me. 
wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves of a year old? Notice the confusion. The Israelites are saying here, how do I bow before God? How do I worship God? Uh, is it through the ritual of sacrifice? Is it through the ritual of sacrifice? I look around our country and even across our globe, and on Saturdays and Sundays, depending on the religion, Saturdays and Sundays, places of worship fill up, but there isn't a whole lot of worship that pleases the Lord going on. What's going on is people are going through the motions of a ritual. They're just simply going through a ritual. Yes, I'm talking about the Catholic Church. Yes, I'm talking about uh, the Hindu religion. Yes, I'm talking about Muslims and their prayer rugs, and they're bowing toward uh, Mecca and prayers to Allah. But I'm also talking about fundamental independent Baptist churches. I'm talking about people who show up to church and they're simply putting in the time and they're going through the motions and they stand and sing when it's time to stand and sing, but their heart's not in it. Uh, they, 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 they bow their head to pray when it's time for corporate prayer, but they're thinking about their grocery list and they're thinking about what they have to do after church and they're, they're, they're thinking about the busy week they have coming up. You see, they're going through the motions of worship. They're going through the ritual of sacrifice, but their mindset is wrong. Their mindset is wrong. And God is angry at the Israelites. And the Israelites are saying here through Michael, well, what are we supposed to do? How do we even bow before God? And, and Micah says back to them, he's saying to them, God does not just want an empty set of rituals and sacrifices. God wants your heart. And that is the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. You see, our heart grows so cold and weary. Listen, I watch and I'm thankful that White Oak Baptist Church has folks in it that have been saved for 30, 40, and even sometimes 50 years, and uh, some even longer than that. I rejoice in that. But I thank God for the young Christians who are in our church who've only been saved a short time. They bring that zeal and that energy and that fire for God. Let me just say to you that have been saved a long time, don't you ever, 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 ever pick up a bucket of your sour water and throw that on a new Christian zeal and fire. Don't you ever say something like, well, wait till you've been saved a little bit longer. You'll calm down. I sure hope they don't calm down. You know what? They don't need to calm down. You need to get revved up. Some of their fire needs to come like your wet wood. Is that you're just you're just cold and and sour, and my friend, uh, you have the wrong idea of worship here. Isaiah, or rather Micah, is saying uh, uh, through uh, uh, God to the people, uh, I do not like your mindset. Let her be noticed. God does not like your methods. God does not like your methods. Look at verse six. Wherefore shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Now, uh, let me just say here, I enjoy the practical Christian life. How many enjoy preaching where you're told, if you do this, then you will get this? How many enjoy preaching like that? Amen. You like to be told, uh, do A and you'll get B, right? 
And uh, listen, uh, here is the formula for a practical Christian life. What I'm saying is a preaching that takes the Christian life out of the abstract and puts it in the absolute. I enjoy that. I enjoy knowing that uh, I need to read my Bible and pray, and, and I enjoy sermons that teach me how to pray or Bible studies that teach me how to pray. Listen, I'm all for the practical Christian life. I enjoy practical preaching. I seek out for my own ears practical preaching. I try to be practical in my preaching, but let me be clear, God is not looking for you to be a robot. He is not looking for you to be a robot. What God wants is your heart. He wants your heart. These Israelites had allowed secular ideas to infiltrate their concept of pleasing God. Well, if we just walk through this formula, then we'll somehow please the higher power. Burnt offerings, we find. Calves of a year old. Thousands of rams. Ten thousands of rivers of oil. And then we see the perversion in their worship. We see the sacrificing of their children. Boy, one of the strongest blights against the Israelites was the worship of Molech. This God that's made out of, uh, uh, at least the hands of it are made out of metal. And a fire that would burn in the lap representing promiscuity and sensuality and and the Israelites would take their infants, their newborns, their toddlers. The hands of that God would be red hot and they would place their children in the hands of Molech. How horrible. They thought somehow, look back at the end of uh, verse number 7 there. It says... um, Shall I get my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Is it any wonder the judgment of God is coming down on these people? They're taking the fruit of their body and sacrificing it as though somehow that's supposed to purge them of their sin. How perverted and wicked and awful this people had become. You say, well, Molech, I mean, we don't, we're not barbaric like that. Well, have you looked at the abortion industry in the United States of America? We're, we're guilty. The same wickedness, the same demonic force behind Molech is present and alive and well today in our country. I, and I, I always like to make sure I include this in here when I talk about this. If you're in the room tonight or watching online and, and you've had an abortion... Chances are you're ridden with guilt, and I'm not here to throw a single stone at, a single, at anyone who's had an abortion. In fact, my heart hurts for you, and I want you to know I love you. And there is forgiveness for those who have gone down that road, and you seek out that forgiveness, and God will forgive you. But the abortion industry as a whole is the holocaust of this country right here. Christians need to stand up to it, stand up against it. I don't like getting political in the pulpit. I work hard to not get political in the pulpit. But I'll just say this. You make sure that you don't vote for even a dog catcher if he stands for abortion. We need to put politicians in place that are against abortion and will actually do something about it. And I I find it disturbing that when I go looking at local politicians online to figure out where they stand. By the way, I don't care about Republican or Democrat. I want to know where they stand on this topic. 
A lot of times you can't find a, a, a position where they stand on it. You say, well, pastor, what do you do then? I don't vote for anyone when I, when I don't know where they stand. This, num- this issue politically is number one for me. Number one for me. It, it is a blight against our country and brings down the wrath of God. These people were upset at God for letting the Assyrians come down and ransack their country and carry their children away into captivity and burn down their cities and, and kill their loved ones. They're, they're, they're holding a grudge against God, but God says, wait a minute here, uh, your, your mindset is backwards. Your, your methods of worship are perverted and wrong. Letter C, we see God does not need your money. God does not need your money. Look at Micah chapter 6 and look back at verse number 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? A ram is an expensive animal. A very expensive animal. Ten thousands of rivers of oil. This was a sign of wealth. And this is the idea that somehow I can buy my way into good standing with God. Boy, this idea has uh, been around for a long time, hasn't it? You may remember Martin Luther and the 95 theses that were nailed uh, to the door, uh, the, the door of the Catholic Church there. And what got Martin Luther all worked up and to even look into the false doctrine of the Catholic Church was this idea of selling indulgences. And you can buy your way into God's good graces if you just spend enough money. And, and Martin Luther said, no, 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 hold on a minute. This is nothing more than a money grab. And got him looking and researching. And he came across Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And hence the Protestant Reformation was born. And not my purpose of the message tonight to, uh, to, to put up or put down Martin Luther, but more to point out that the idea of, of, of spending money to buy your way out of sin has permeated many cultures. And again, I think it can even affect people who attend a Baptist church. You know, why is it that you give in the offering plate at our church? I just want to say that if you give at our church... I don't know who you are. I don't look at the giving. I don't know who does what giving. The only, the only giving I know around here is what I put in the plate. And I don't want to know. Don't come tell me what you give. Amen? Uh, but um, uh, why is it that you give? Do you give in the offering plate so that somehow your conscience can be soothed over the sin you have going on in your life? Somehow if I give this much money, I put this check in the plate, and I, I give this money to the Lord, then now I feel better about the way I'm living. Oh, that shouldn't be how it is. You don't give your money to somehow get out of trouble with God. You give money because the Lord loves you and you love the Lord. And your giving is part of your worship to the Lord. You say, well, if God does not need my money, then, Pastor, I'll just quit putting my money in the offering plate. I'll show you that God needs my money. Can I just tell you that White Oak Baptist Church has all had all kinds of turnover over the last 41 years. There's a handful of people in the room tonight that have been here through the history of the church, but 85% of this church was not here 40 years ago. One thing has been constant in our church's history. God has provided the funds to keep this church moving. Do you know that if you're the biggest giver or the littlest giver in this church, God does not need your money? And if you were to stop giving tomorrow, God would continue to fund the work here at this church. Amen? We believe that tonight? Look, you're not giving 
so that somehow you can carry the church through one more week. Uh, Listen, hear me loud and clear. You get a blessing out of giving to the Lord. Especially when you do it with the right heart attitude. And these Israelites thought, well, I don't understand why God's upset with this. And, And Micah says back to them, well, listen, God does not like your mindset. God does not like your methods. They're perverted. They're, they're wicked and, and, and they're gross and disgusting. And God does not need your money. We see the Lord's attorney, number five. Notice the Lord's admonition. The Lord's admonition. I love the book of Micah. Um, uh, Micah preached hellfire and brimstone, but he did so with a touch of compassion. He allowed the compassion of God to flow through him while he thundered out truth. We... We get to verse 8 where we began tonight and we find Micah the lawyer explaining to the people what it is that God wants from his people. People, Micah answers the question that he poses for the people. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Here's the answer to that question. Look at verse 8. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? It's not sacrifices and and, and rivers of of, of oil. Look look here. But to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Notice letter A, we are to enjoy justice. We are to enjoy justice. There was a judge who opened uh, court with, uh, with an announcement. He said, gentlemen... I have in my hand two checks. A bribe, some might call it. One check comes from the defendant for $15,000. Another from the accuser for $10,000. He said, what I've decided to do is return the $5,000 to the defendant and decide the case strictly on its merits. Judge is walking away with $20,000. Amen? Everyone loses. Um... You all okay tonight? That was supposed to be funny. I just didn't land. Amen? Um, Justice Gray of the Supreme Court once said to a man who had appeared before him earlier in his career at a lower court, and uh, this man had escaped conviction by some technicality. Justice Gray said to this man, he said, I know that you are guilty, and you know it. And I wish you to remember that one day you will stand before a better and wiser judge than myself. And that there you will be dealt according to justice and not according to the law. You will be dealt according to justice and not according to the law. Let me ask you, do you love justice? Do you love justice? Again, verse 8. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what the Lord doth require of thee, but to do justly. Now, we all love justice when it applies to someone who has hurt us, doesn't it? We all love justice then. Oh man, that guy did me wrong. Throw the book at him. Hit him in the nose. Knock him down. Lock him up. Put him away for life. Right? Right? I think in the Buddhist world, they call it karma when you, you do someone wrong and then just so happens that wrong comes back at you. In, uh, in uh, Christianity, we call that reaping what you sow, right? You reap what you sow. 
Uh, and we all like it when someone does us wrong and then they get wrong done back to them. You say, oh, I don't like that. Yes, you do. Stop being a Pharisee. Yes, you do. Everyone likes it. Everyone likes it when someone's done them dirty and um, life comes around and, and does them dirty back. And, uh, you, you, you may have matured to a place where you shrug your shoulders at that, but deep down in your base state, we all enjoy that. But when I ask you, do you love justice, I'm not asking you, do you love justice when it applies to someone else, but do you love justice when it applies to you? Do you love it when you get caught doing wrong and you're held to the letter of the law? It will be a great day in your life when you accept the fact that you cannot and will not ever truly understand what justice is. We look at an occurrence in our lives and think, if we're not careful, we can think that God is unfair. That God is unfair. By the way, when we think that God is unfair, this is when we put God on trial. Because God has handled me in a way that in my view of justice is unfair. And I would just remind all of us this evening that God has a perspective and a perfection that we will never be able to understand. We will never comprehend. You be very careful at shaking a fist at God and saying, God, why did you let this happen to me? Because God has a perspective on justice that is far, far, far more superior than ours will ever be. I've said this, I say this on a regular basis. It bears repeating here. Take an ant crawling across the sidewalk and try to teach that ant trigonometry. Take a human being and try to get him to comprehend God. You have a far greater chance of getting the ant to comprehend trigonometry than you do a human God. Don't you ever question the justice of God. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are His ways above our ways and His thoughts above our thoughts. When God brings justice in your life and it seems unfair... Boy, take your finger away from pointing at God and say, God, you are always just. You always do justly. Letter A, enjoy justice. Letter B, embrace mercy. Embrace mercy. Look back at verse 8. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly. Look here. And to love mercy. Love mercy. God's justice demanded that Adam and Eve be kicked out of the garden. God's mercy demanded that he provide a path for redemption. God's justice required Cain to be banished from humanity, while God's mercy required that Cain be marked and protected. God's justice required that he wipe out mankind with the flood, because as Genesis 6-5 says, the imagination of his heart was only evil continually. God's mercy required that he save Noah and his family. God's justice required that David's baby die because of his adultery and cover-up of a murder. God's mercy allowed Solomon to be born through the bowels of Bathsheba. God's justice requires mankind to be held accountable for their sin. God's mercy required Jesus to go to a cross and provide redemption for me and you. I don't know about you, but I want to enjoy the justice of God. 
I want to embrace the mercy of God in my life. A couple of Sunday evenings ago, we talked about how that God is a perfect balance of mercy and truth. That truth is justice. God does not just throw the book at us, my friend. He follows that up with His love and His tender, compassionate mercy in our lives. And I have to say tonight that I am thankful that God is a God who gives me chance after chance after chance. I cannot even begin to tell you how many times I've gotten on my knees in prayer, wept over my own sin. my own shortcomings. Many times I've been discouraged in prayer and said, God, I am just so useless and broken and sinful. Why you would ever call me and use me to lead a wife or lead children or pastor a church so broken, so sinful, and I feel the love of God come flowing down to me, and He says, it's not because of you, it's because of me, and that mercy is new every morning. I I have a hard time understanding any Christian who can hold a grudge against a God who just forgives and forgives and forgives and forgives. We talk about God being the God of a second chance, but I know in my life He's the God of the millionth chance. Anytime that God decides to pull back on the mercy and bring pain and hurt and trial in my life, He is very, very justified in doing so. We see letter A, we're to enjoy justice. Letter B, we're to embrace mercy. Notice letter C, we're to exercise humility. We're to exercise humility. Look at Micah 6, verse 8 again. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. What doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk Humbly with thy God. The Jews had gotten good at the technical aspect of walking with God. By the time you make it into the New Testament, you find them wearing phylacteries and uh, their shoulders broad and everything on the outward giving the appearance that they're holy and, and, and good and, and righteous and and godly, but God did not have their heart. He did not have their heart. Why do we struggle so much with pride? I could ask us all tonight to raise our hand if we struggle with pride, but the truth is, every hand belongs up. We all battle with pride. All of us. Why? And there's a lot of ways to answer that question. But one of the ways to understand it in context of the message tonight is we lack perspective on how big and holy 
and merciful God is to us and how wicked and shameful and insignificant and finite that we are. Because if we really, really, truly understood deep down in our heart how big God is and how holy God is and how little we are and how shameful we are, there is nothing to brag about. There is nothing to be proud about. You see, if we're going to get to a place where we have a a walk with God that pleases God, then we must embrace uh, mercy. We must enjoy uh, 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 justice. We must exercise humility. I've said this as well. And when you pastor a church long enough, eventually you repeat illustrations and the church just put up with it. Amen? If I had a casket down here in front with a dead body in it, um, we do funerals here. Uh, on a, uh, occasional, occasionally we do funerals here. We had one for Miss Betty Olson. And um, if I had walked up to Miss Betty Olson in the casket and I had begun to curse her and criticize her and call her every name in the book, I can promise you this. And I'm, I'm telling you I'm doing this with no, and I didn't do this. This is an illustration, all right? Miss Betty's a godly woman. Amen. She's with Jesus. But if there's no one in the room, just me and her, and I'm just, I'm just, just, just pouring out poison all over her. You know what, Miss Betty is not going to be offended at all. You know why? She's dead. You cannot offend a dead body. You cannot offend a dead body. Maybe that's why Paul said that we are to die to ourselves each day. Psalm 119, 165 says, Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Well, I don't like this and that at church, and I don't like the way this person looks at me, and I don't like the fact that person took my parking spot and sat in my seat. Don't you know I have sat in the same spot in this church for 25 years? I'm going to tell that visitor to move! And then Brother Kyle has the unmitigated gall to walk up to me on a Sunday morning and ask me to move to the middle of the aisle. Oh! Many of you, Brother Kyle comes walking down the aisle Sunday morning looking to seat people and you put your head down and just hope he moves on to another pew. He's gonna, you're singing to him, I shall not be moved, right? You won't be moved. Boy, we get offended so easy, don't we? We get offended so easy. I don't like the way this is done and procedurally I don't like the way that is done. And Where is that I die daily attitude. I die daily. You can't offend a dead Christian. I'm talking about a Christian who's died to himself. A Christian who's a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God because it's our reasonable service. You you can't offend a Christian like that. Boy, we need to get back to a place where we exercise humility. Number six, notice the people's affliction. The people's affliction. Look at verse number 9 of Micah chapter 6. The Lord's voice crieth unto the city, and the man of wisdom shall see thy name. Hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it? Quickly here, letter A, notice the rod's correction. 
the rod's correction. Right there in the middle of verse 9 it says, Hear ye the rod. Oftentimes we look at the correction of God as unjust. We forget a passage of Scripture like Hebrews 12 that says, Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Even as the Son in whom, he be, in whom He loveth. And listen, God, if He loves you, He's going to spank you from time to time. He's going to bend you over the proverbial knee. He's going to give you a whipping. He's going to wear you out. In the South, we didn't call them whippings. We called them whoopings. Whoopings. And a whipping is what mom gave you. A whooping is what dad gave you. And you'd much rather have a whipping than a whooping. God is good occasionally at just saying, okay, I've given you plenty of slack. You know what? I've warned you and warned you and warned you and warned you. Man, Pastor Lejeune's gotten up there and he's preached against your sin six times in the last six months. And you won't budge off of it. And the Spirit of God has convicted you on this all, all day, every day, for weeks and months. And you won't get off of it. And now all of a sudden God brings down financial distress in your life. And health distress in your life. And relational stress in your life. And God says, I'm going to punish you. And then we turn around and look at God and say... God, I thought you were a God of love. Yep, God is a God of love, but sometimes His love hurts a little bit. Right? I think about a parent giving a spanking new child and says, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. I'm just going to tell the kids a little secret here. Kids, listen up here tonight. If your parents ever tell you that, they are lying through their teeth. It does not hurt them. more. I promise you, it does not hurt them more than it hurts you. I've never told my kids that because it's just not true. Amen? And sometimes God has to hurt us to get our attention. Sometimes God has to hurt us to bring us around. Don't you ever, 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 ever question God when He's correcting you. You understand His hand of correction is for a reason. We're seeing the people's affliction, letter A, the rod's correction, letter B, their reputation corrupted. The reputation corrupted. Look at verse 9. The Bible says, The Lord's voice crieth unto the city. Look here. And the man of wisdom shall see thy name. O people who are wise, looking at you from the outside, they know who you are. They know you're my children. And they're going to see the wickedness that you've dipped your soul in. Your reputation is corrupt. You, You have bragged and boasted and said, We are God's people well, now God's removed His hand. In a sense, God's divorcing Himself from the people, at least for a time, letting them be carried away into captivity. And by the way, the ten northern tribes would be carried away into captivity and have never returned and will not return into the millennial reign of Christ. Reputation corrupted. Let her see. We see their reprobate counselors. Their reprobate counselors. Look at verse 16. Let's skip down to verse 16. For the statutes of Omri are corrupt. And all the works of the house of Jacob, and ye walk in their counsels, that I should make thee a desolation, and the inhabitants thereof and hissing. Therefore ye shall bear the reproach of my people. Look there, and ye walk in their counsels. Where was the house of Ahab? You know who Ahab was. Ahab was married to Jezebel. You ever stopped and thought about how pretty the name Jezebel would have been had Jezebel never lived? Jezebel is a pretty sounding name, but I've never met a child named Jezebel. No one names their child Jezebel. You are an evil parent if you name your child Jezebel. Right? 
If you were named Jezebel, I know of a good courthouse in about 300 bucks to get that name changed, right? <laughs> they walked in the councils of the house of Ahab. What's that mean? That means they worshiped the god of fertility, the god of Baal. Where did that get them? You see how the chapter begins with Israel's complaint being laid out against God, and now God is laying out His complaint against Israel. He says, you're in the mess you're in. It's not my fault. Quit blaming me. You're in the mess you're in because you have followed godless, wicked counselors. That's got you where you are. Number seven, lastly, notice the Lord's absolution or the Lord's pardon. Look at Micah chapter 7, look at verse 18. Oh, I love the way this chapter ends. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity? Passeth by the transgression of the remnant of the heritage. He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. Letter A, his pardon, he pardons because of his character. He pardons because of his character. Look down at the end of verse 18. It says, because he delighteth in mercy. God, God does not forgive you based on your behavior. He forgives you because of his character. How many of you here have ever found it hard to forgive someone who's hurt you deeply? Raise your hand if you're with me on that. No, seriously, everyone participate. You've ever had it hard to forgive someone. You know what? God never has a problem forgiving anyone who ever does him wrong. My ability to forgive has limitations on it. God's ability to forgive is infinite. God doesn't forgive you because somehow you're a good person and you figured out how to live a cleaned up lifestyle. We really lack an understanding of how wicked and sinful all of us are on a minute level. Oh, we could take each one of us individually and put us our lives under a microscope, little at a time, examine our lives. And you know what you'd find? You'd find that you commit so many sins every day that you had no idea you committed. Every single one of us. Down to the very level of our thought life. And somehow we think that, oh, I live better than... Mr. Such-and-such or Mrs. Such-and-such. Listen, God isn't forgiving you because you're some kind of a good person. God forgives you because He is a God of character. And His mercy is new and rich. One day, Jesus Christ will save 144,000 Jews. And they will bring about a revival that this world has never seen. Why? Because Jesus is willing to stick by His people regardless of all of their indiscretions and mistakes. And Jesus knew the story of, of how they would behave before Genesis 12, where Abraham was called, ever happened. But he still chose Abraham and his people anyway. God does not pardon you because of your behavior. He pardons you because of his character. Let her be noticed. He pardons because of his compassion. He pardons because of his compassion. Look down at verse number 19. He will turn again. Look here. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. 
I'm glad I know a God who's compassionate. I'm glad I know a God that even though at times in my life I've doubted Him and questioned Him, I've wondered uh, about Him, I'll just pull it all back and, and, uh, and turn off the opacity and be as transparent with you tonight as I can. In my teen years, I had about a two or three year window where I questioned whether or not there even was a God. Now, I was saved, but I questioned whether or not there was even a God. And, and I had a faith crisis, and it was ugly. I kept going to church, I kept going through the motions, but I was just going through the motions. You know what? I wasn't faithful to God in my heart for a long time. There have been other seasons in my life where I knew there was a God, but my lifestyle wasn't in line with the Lord. And you know what God did? He just kept pouring compassion on me. Because God is faithful to me, even when I'm not faithful to Him. Great is Thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning. Let her see, he pardons because of his covenants. Take your Bibles over to John chapter 10, verse 27. John 10, 27. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob, Micah 7, 20 says, and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. God had made some strong commitments to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would love and protect his people. God was going to come through and will one day come through and restore His people back uh, into His good graces because He's a God who keeps His covenants. But God has made a covenant with us, the New Testament church. Look at John 10. Look at verse 27. I love these verses. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. No matter how wicked I've lived, no matter how wicked you've lived, no matter how wayward and backslidden you've been, you have a God who's never, ever, 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 ever going to let you out of your salvation. You can't, uh, 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 you can't wiggle and, and push and, and fight and claw your way out of His hand. Listen, no man can take you out of the Father's hand. That means no other person, but it also means you. You cannot take yourself out of the Father's hand. You are protected. Your salvation is secure no matter how you live, no matter how far away you get from God. When you give your heart to Christ for salvation, your salvation is secure. You are a sheep under His uh, care. Uh, you hear His voice and you know Him and He knows you. One day we'll get to heaven and we'll all be healed and there will be no more grudges against each other, grudges against God. No one will ever hold God in contempt any longer because we'll have a perfect, crystal clear understanding of His justice. The people called God into court for neglecting them. What did God do? Well, God defended Himself. God proved their guilt. God sentenced them and then the loving God part, uh, promised pardon. And tonight I want to ask you three questions in closing. Closing. Are you enjoying God's justice? Are you embracing God's mercy? And are you exercising humility as you walk with God? Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this evening.